This BYU devotional address with Elder Kevin S. Hamilton was given on January 24, 2023. Today we are pleased to hear from Elder Kevin S. Hamilton. Elder Hamilton was sustained uh, as a General Authority 70 of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in April 2013. He received a bachelor's degree in marketing from BYU and later earned a master's degree in MBA in finance from the University of Washington. Prior to his call as a general authority, Elder Hamilton, Elder Hamilton was a co-founder and partner in a venture capital firm. Elder Hamilton has served in a number of church callings, including full-time missionary in the Switzerland Geneva Mission, bishop, high counselor, stake president, and president of the Belgium-Brussels-Netherlands Mission from 2003 to 2006. Elder Hamilton and his wife, Claudia, are the parents of six children. And now we will have the pleasure of hear hearing from Elder Kevin S. Hamilton. Thank you, President Vorkink. Well, brothers and sisters, I love this university. I attended BYU as a freshman before I left for a mission. Uh, this is me on my mission in France. Believe it or not, my companion had just given me a haircut with a pair of scissors that he found in the apartment. <laughs> I came back to BYU after my mission and met Sister Hamilton here, and you know the story, same ward, same co-ed softball team. For me, it was love at first sight. For her, it took some encouragement from her grandmother who saw something, somehow saw something in me. This is us early in our adventure together. After a time, we were sealed in the Los Angeles temple, and then we graduated together from BYU, and here we are standing outside this very building following commencement exercises. All six of our children graduated from BYU and most of their spouses, so this has always been a very special place for us. I remember sitting right up there as a freshman and feeling the Spirit of the Lord as his prophet spoke in a devotional just like this one. We love you, our fellow BYU students and faculty. This is a unique place, what Elder Holland referred to as an educational Mount Everest, and you are a singular and unique people. My remarks, remarks today are centered on a very simple question. Why a church? Why do we need a church? especially this church. I have had friends over the years tell me something to the effect, I'm really more of a spiritual person, not a religious person. Or, I find my spirituality on my own, not through organized religion. Or, one time a friend said to me, my religion is just to be nice to people, to be kind. Well, it's good to be kind, and we should be nice. But for a number of reasons, we need an organized church, one that can deliver the blessings of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Addressing the topic of those who say they are spiritual but not religious, the Pew Research Center recently reported groups that exhibit the highest levels of traditional religious observance are most likely to say that they regularly experience a sense of spiritual peace and nearly two-thirds of religiously affiliated adults say they feel a deep sense of spiritual peace at least once a week. 
In Old Testament times, the church was generally centered on the family, and families ideally were presented over by, presided over by loving parents. Think of Adam and Eve or Lehi and Sariah, with the father serving as the patriarch or spiritual leader. These families taught the gospel of Jesus Christ and helped one another stay true and faithful to God. In New Testament times, Jesus Christ himself organized a church, even his church, as we read in Ephesians, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. In our day, the church of Jesus Christ has been organized again on the earth through the prophet Joseph Smith who was called by God to do so. It was a restoration of the New Testament church, complete with apostles and prophets and with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. But the question remains, why do we need a church? Why isn't it enough for me to simply worship God directly on a beach or a mountaintop? Why do I need the intermediary of a church? The first presidency teaches that Jesus Christ established his church to enable individuals and families to do the work of salvation and exaltation. In addition, they teach that the church provides priesthood keys, authority, covenants and ordinances, prophetic direction, scriptures, gospel learning and teaching support, service and leadership opportunities, and a community of saints. Now, the church is not just a social club, although we certainly enjoy being together and we love it. It's also not just a humanitarian organization, although we do a lot of that. The church of Jesus Christ is how we come to Christ. It is his church, it teaches his doctrine, it provides his ordinances and covenants. We can think of the church using the analogy of a prescription drug capsule. The church is the capsule and the atonement of Jesus Christ is the medicine delivered inside the capsule. The church delivers the blessings of the atonement of Christ to its members who are faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Through the ordinances and covenants made available by Jesus Christ through his church, we can bind ourselves or yoke ourselves or connect ourselves to him. A covenant is a sacred agreement between you and Heavenly Father with infinite love and desiring our greatest happiness. He sets the conditions for each covenant. If you accept and live the covenant, he will bless you. A covenant is meant to be binding, to create an everlasting connection. An ordinance, on the other hand, is a sacred physical act that shows God that you accept his covenant. It must be performed by someone with priesthood authority. For example, when you were baptized, you showed that you were willing to follow Jesus Christ and take upon yourself his name. At baptism, you entered in his path, and you continue on this straight and narrow path as you keep your baptismal covenants and make additional covenants in the house of the Lord and keep them. 
These covenants guide your journey like signposts on a path. That's why we sometimes call it the covenant path. Returning to God is a process of receiving ordinances and making and keeping covenants with Him. And because God works through covenants, He refers to us as a covenant people or even children of the covenant. And President Nelson has tried to help us understand this as our true identity. When Moroni in the Book of Mormon says, yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, this is how we do it. We make and keep sacred covenants, and as we do so, we are drawn to him. We bind ourselves to him. We connect with him. These covenants are found in his church. They are delivered through priesthood ordinances. The Savior invites us to come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus Christ is not some sort of distant or remote being looking down on us and cheering us on. He is with us every step along the way, every step on the covenant path. To the Old Testament prophet Enoch, he simply said, walk with me. In other words, I'll be with you on your journey. I am there for you. God's great purpose, his objective, what he calls his work and glory, is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of his children. Now, that's quite a statement. Immortality is to live forever with a resurrected physical body. Eternal life, or exaltation, is to become like God and live in his presence eternally as families. Immortality is a free gift. There are no conditions. Because of the atonement, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will all be resurrected and live forever. Eternal life, on the other hand, is a conditional gift. It is conditioned on making and keeping covenants with God. Eternal life, or exaltation as Joseph Smith referred to it, is our ultimate destiny, not just to return to live with God, but ultimately to become like Him. As we make and keep sacred covenants received by priesthood ordinances like baptism, confirmation, and temple ordinances, we gradually put off the natural man and progress through the eternities until ultimately we become even as he is. These covenants and ordinances are only found in his church. Because of his great love for his children and his desire that they receive all that he has, he has commanded us to gather together. From the Book of Mormon we read, and the church did meet together oft to fast and to pray and to speak one with another concerning the welfare of their souls, and they did meet together oft to partake of bread and wine in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. The sacrament is a priesthood ordinance that occurs weekly. Each Sabbath day, we come to a dedicated meeting house somewhere in the world, and under the keys of a bishop, 
we worship, we sing, we pray, we partake of the sacrament, in that ordinance, we renew or refresh all of our baptism and temple covenants. We rededicate ourselves to keeping these covenant promises. And through this process of regularly gathering and participation in the sacrament ordinance, ordinance we change. We become transformed. Over time, even become new creatures in Christ. Just last week, in this very devotional setting, Elder Neil L. Anderson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles said, we need ordinances and covenants. We remember and renew each week as we take the sacrament. Our faith grows and develops as we regularly and conscientiously work to build our discipleship with others who are as committed as we are." End of quote. This is the plan of our Heavenly Father for His children, to help them realize their full divine potential. This is how we come to Christ. This is how we enter and stay on the covenant pathway. The Church of Jesus Christ enables us to come to Christ. Now, his church is led and directed by his apostles, just as it was in New Testament times, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His plan has not changed. His doctrine does not change. His covenants do not change. His church exists so that he can accomplish his objective, which is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of his children. Now, we, the general authorities and leaders of the church, we love you and care deeply about you. We're grateful for your faith and goodness. And furthermore, your heavenly Father and your Savior, Jesus Christ, love you with a perfect, even infinite love. In that spirit of love and appreciation, could I share just a few observations with you? These are a few things that I have observed personally as I have traveled around the church and as I meet with members of the church. My first observation, I have heard some that would try to decouple or disconnect Jesus Christ from his church and his apostles by saying things like, I follow Jesus, not the church, or I follow the Savior, not the apostles. To those who say this, I would simply say, it's not possible. You cannot accept Jesus Christ and reject his church or his authorized messengers. You cannot separate Jesus Christ from the church of Jesus Christ. He taught this to the Nephites in the Book of Mormon. Quote, blessed are ye if ye shall give heed unto the words of these 12 whom I have chosen to minister unto you and to be your servants. This is the Nephite account of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous sermons in the Bible. Yet in the Book of Mormon version, Christ adds a very clear teaching emphasizing the role of the 12 to make sure the Nephites know to whom they should look. It's simply not possible to completely follow the Savior without following his church. You cannot come to Christ without coming to his church and you cannot come to his church without accepting his prophets. Another observation, 
The Lord's church is one of order and organization. It's organized into, ge into geographic wards and stakes. We don't choose which ward to attend. There is no bishop shopping or ward hopping in God's kingdom. We simply attend in the ward where we live and serve to the best of our abilities. Every once in a while, I hear someone say something like, I don't like my ward. It is so unfriendly. Or sometimes, I don't get much out of sacrament meeting. I'm not even sure why I even go. But a ward is not about what you can get, but what you can give. It is the laboratory where we learn the gospel and learn to love and serve one another. Consider the response of President Spencer W. Kimball when someone once asked him, what do you do when you find yourself caught in a boring sacrament meeting? President Kimball thought for a moment, then replied, I don't know. I've never been in one. With all his church experience, President Kimball undoubtedly had sat through his share of meetings where the speaker read their talk or spoke in a monotone or gave a travelogue. But President Kimball understood that we do not go to sacrament meeting to be entertained, but to worship the Lord, renew our covenants, and be taught by the Spirit. Occasionally, I have heard people say that those who serve in the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve are only human and are capable of making mistakes. While it is true that we are all fallible human beings, the safety net for all of us is the council system that we use at every level of the church. Decisions in the Lord's Church always require a unanimous council. From the general handbook we read, all members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles are prophets, seers, and revelators. Together they form the Council of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Under the direction of the Lord and by unanimous voice, this council has authority to declare and interpret doctrine and establish policy for the church. When the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve speak in unity, they speak on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another comment that I hear from time to time, especially on social media, is, and I quote, be the change, as in, I will be the change, you know, as in, I will stay in the church and work for change from within. But how does this square with the invitation to simply be humble followers of Christ. Besides, true change, the kind of change that makes a difference in the eternities, comes from within. We change our hearts and minds, and then our circumstances change. We repent, and then we change. President Nelson has taught this frequently. I quote, when Jesus asks you and me to repent, he is inviting us to change our mind, our knowledge, our spirit, even the way we breathe. He's asking us to change the way we love, think, serve, spend our time, treat our wives, teach our children, and even care for our bodies. End of quote. I occasionally meet people that feel it is their absolute duty to point out what they see as shortcomings or failings of the Lord's church. They feel that they are loyal to the Savior but opposed to certain teachings of His church. President Dallin H. Oaks has addressed this. 
Some who use personal wisdom, reasoning or wisdom to resist prophetic direction, give themselves a label borrowed from elected bodies, the loyal opposition. However appropriate for a democracy, there is no warrant for this concept in the government of God's kingdom where questions are honored, but opposition is not. As I visit with members across the church, I sometimes hear things like, I don't support the church's policy on, and then you fill in the blank. Or, I don't agree with the way the church does this or that. Could I suggest an alternative approach? Substitute the word Savior or Lord or Jesus Christ in place of the church. As in, I don't support the Savior's policy on you fill in the blank. Or I don't agree with the way Jesus Christ does this or that. For me, personally, that seems to put a very different perspective on things. The Old Testament story of Uzzah is instructive. David had just been anointed king of Israel and was transporting the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now the Ark was a symbol of God's presence, of his glory and majesty, and when first given to Israel, the Ark was placed in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and only the high priest could approach it, and then only on the Day of Atonement. When transporting the Ark, the priests were required to use poles running through the rings on the sides to carry it. On this day, as the Ark crossed Nashon's threshing floor, it became unstable, the scripture says, for the oxen shook it, and Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God to steady it. The punishment was swift and severe. Quote, God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. Close quote. Well, the symbolism for day is obvious. Don't steady the ark. Only the Lord and those he appoints the first presidency are allowed to steady or lead the church. Only those who hold the keys are permitted to touch the ark. In this life, we walk by faith, not by sight. In spite of our very best efforts, we sometimes just see through the glass darkly. It's confusing. But the Lord, who knows the end from the beginning, sees things differently than we do. As Isaiah said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Sometimes we just don't know every reason and every rationale behind every point of doctrine or every church policy. When this happens, we simply move forward in faith trusting, hoping, believing. In due time, we will know all things, everything. In the meantime, we look to the First Presidency and the Twelve who lead His church for inspired guidance and counsel. This question of why a church is an important issue to wrestle through. As the Savior taught in Luke chapter 14, wherefore settle this in your hearts, that you will do the things which I shall teach you and command you. We have to get this settled deep in our hearts. Otherwise, we are at risk of being as children, 
tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. My dear brothers and sisters, this is the message. We need a church, and this church is literally his church. The Savior Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ are inseparably joined together. The Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency who direct his church actually speak in his name. As the Savior taught Joseph Smith in the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. Sister Hamilton and I served for five years in Africa. One of our Area 70s and a very dear friend was Elder Kumbalani Malechi. Kumbalani learned of the church in 1980 in a township outside of Durban, South Africa at the age of 15 when he was baptized. A few years later at age 19, he was called to serve as a full-time missionary in the London, England Mission, one of the first black members from South Africa to serve a full-time mission. Now, it might be hard for us to imagine, but Elder Malachi had never heard of the previous church policy that restricted black Africans from the priesthood. He simply had never been exposed to it. One day, as he and his companion were out tracting, they introduced themselves as missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to a man who then asked, you are a Mormon? Before they could say a word, the man continued, and you are black? Elder Malechi says, I looked at my hands to see if I was still black. (laughs) And indeed I was. Finally, I said to him, yes, I am black and I am a Mormon. The man continued, you are lost, brother. How can you be a member of a racist church? Mormons do not accept blacks in their church. This stopped Elder Malachi in his tracks since he had never heard this before. As they left the man's house, Elder Malachi turned to us and asked his companion, what was that all about? And the companion did his best to answer his questions and in doing so, he informed Elder Malachi of the priesthood and temple restrictions which previously existed for members of black African descent. Elder Malachi thought about this new information for several days and finally concluded that he could no longer be a member of the church, let alone serve as a missionary. He made an appointment with his mission president to let him know that he would be returning home and resigning his membership. I now quote from Elder Malachi, President Penninger had me come to his office and I rehearsed what had happened and voiced my decision to return home to South Africa. I told him that I could not be a member of a racist church. After listening patiently to me, my mission president said, Elder Malachi, all that I know is that all worthy men can now be ordained to the priesthood and that Joseph Smith saw the Father and the Son in the sacred grove. President Penninger, he continues, helped me understand two things during that exchange. One, while it is true that the church did not ordain black people to the priesthood for a season, that is the past, and we do not have reasons as to why it happened. And two, He helped me understand that since I have a testimony of the restored gospel, 
including Joseph Smith having been called of God to restore Jesus Christ's church to the earth, why should I walk away? With those two truths firm in my heart, I decided to stay. Now, that decision has made all the difference. Brother Kumbalani Malachi went on to become highly educated. He has been sealed in the temple and with his beloved wife, Futi, has raised a faithful family. He has served in the church in Africa in many capacities, including Area 70 and mission president. He is a faithful disciple of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we come to Christ as we move forward in faith. It is not blind faith, it's just faith. We trust, we hope, we believe, and we act on our beliefs. We come to Christ through his church. As Helaman taught his sons, it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that you must build your foundation that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down because of the rock upon which you are built. How do we build upon the rock of our Redeemer? We build upon the Savior as we come to him, and we come to him as we receive his authorized ordinances and make and keep the associated covenants. These ordinances and covenants are found in his church. We renew these covenants as we come to his church every Sabbath day and partake of the sacrament. This is how we come to Christ. This is how we walk with him. This is how we realize our full divine potential. In a coming day, every knee shall bend and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Messiah. All flesh shall see him together at once at the same time. We will all be under the same obligation to repent and come to him. All who receive the blessings of exaltation will be required to make and keep the same baptismal and temple covenants which are only found in his church administered by his priesthood. We are the children of the covenant. This is our divine destiny and potential. This is our true identity. I know these things to be true. He lives. This is his church. We need his church. We can know this. You can be settled in your hearts and established upon the rock of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This BYU devotional address with Elder Kevin S. Hamilton was given on January 24th, 2023. BYU Devotionals are a production of BYU Broadcasting.